0: It is often noted that chapter 14 and 15 of the book of Exodus go together in much the same way that chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Judges go together. Hebrew scholar Nahum Sarna, for example, says here, chapters 14 and 15 in Exodus find a parallel in the book of Judges, chapters 4 and 5. There too, a historic prose account is followed by a triumphal ode extolling the victory. Both compositions are here counterparts of an Egyptian literary genre dating from the days of the New Kingdom that features two accounts of the same event, the one prose, the other poetry. Quote. We often forget that the Israelites had lived inside Egyptian culture for 400 years. So, of course, they were influenced by Egyptian norms and traditions. We'd be shocked if they weren't. And so we see this preference for overlapping parallels, for saying the same thing in two different ways. We saw that back in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. There we saw the same story told twice from two different magnifications. Here we're seeing the same story told twice in two different literary genres. This type of overlapping parallelism creates a sort of depth and richness to the biblical text for which I think... We ought to be very grateful. Thanks be to God. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Here we see that the appropriate response to God's saving work is to praise him. Faith is about receiving and responding. Faith doesn't contribute to the work of redemption, but it does respond appropriately, and worship is a big part of what that looks like. Saved people worship. Saved people sing. Saved people rejoice in the work of the Lord. Now, it's interesting to note how Moses characterizes that work. He speaks of it in remarkably militaristic terms. He says that God has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is a man of war. We mustn't ever allow our modern peacetime sentiments to obscure this aspect of God's essential character. The Lord is a man of war. We see that in both the Old and New Testaments. The Apostle Paul uses militaristic terms to describe the saving work of Christ. He says in Colossians 2, 13-15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is... He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, closed quote. It's that sort of language which inspired the Christus Victor model of the atonement. Now, of course, the New Testament uses a variety of terms and metaphors to describe the work of Christ on the cross. But this idea of Christ defeating our enemy and triumphing over the devil is a necessary part of what it means to speak and think biblically about redemption, and by extension, about God. The Lord is a man of war, Old Testament and new. Thanks be to God. The song continues in verse four. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Now let's just pause here and learn a little bit more about Hebrew poetry. Verse 6 in this song is a classic example of what is generally called incremental parallelism whereby the first line, which is incomplete, is then repeated and completed in the second line. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. That is how Hebrew poetry works. It's about repetition, parallelism, and progression. Understanding the basic features of Hebrew poetry will help you understand what the Bible is trying to say so As opportunity permits, we will draw attention to some of these helpful examples. The song continues in verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters." In this section of the song, the emphasis is on God's total victory over every force and power marshaled against his plan and people. Remember, God providentially extended the power encounter with Pharaoh for this very reason. Pharaoh would have cried uncle earlier in the process, but God was communicating. He was communicating with his people, and as we'll see in just a moment, he was communicating with the entire region. He was demonstrating that the so-called gods of Egypt were not gods at all. They were demonic deceptions and idolatrous deceits. And this entire encounter has been engineered to make that plain. We see that theme coming to the foreground in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome, in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Now, modern non Hebrew readers are often concerned by these references in the Old Testament to the gods. Douglas Stewart is helpful here. He says, the mention of the gods should not be understood to suggest polytheism. The plural gods in Hebrew poetry, usually elim as here, includes in its range of meaning the various angels, authorities, and powers that include heavenly angels as well as Satan and his fallen angels, So the expression, the gods, is probably not a helpful translation. It might be better to render that as the heavenly beings or the celestial powers. It's no different than the Apostle Paul's rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this present darkness in Ephesians chapter 6. God stands unique over and above these lesser powers. He has shown that definitively throughout the entire Exodus encounter. Verse 14. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are as still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased." Here in this section, the sense is actually forward-looking. The Hebrew perfect tense can be rendered the way it is here in the ESV, but it can also be used to speak of future events. Scholars will often talk about the prophetic perfect. Events in the future can be spoken of in the perfect tense because they are guaranteed by God. They will happen. They will surely happen. Therefore, it is appropriate to speak of them already in a past tense, as it were. So here, the people will hear. That's the idea. They will tremble, surely, because of what God has done. And of course, that's exactly what happens. When the people of Israel arrive in Canaan, the inhabitants of Jericho have indeed heard, and fear has gripped them, as reported to the spies by Rahab. So this is prophesied here in song, but it is sure to happen because it's all part of God's perfect plan. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Salvation in the Bible is always from and to. God saved the people from Egypt in order to bring them to his holy sanctuary. Though, as we'll see in a minute, there is always a great journey and a difficult desert in the time between. But the fact that the Lord has accomplished the from part of the equation gives us a sure and certain expectation of the to. He has thrown into the sea. Verses 19 to 21 represent a sort of summation and repetition. The work of redemption that gave rise to the song is recalled. And then it is said that Miriam the prophetess took a tambourine and led the women in singing the song. Now, to be clear, the song of Miriam is not a different song. It's the same song. Verse 21 simply quotes the first line of the song of Moses which was the way that songs were titled for most of ancient history. In fact, in most hymn books still today, there's an index at the end of the book that arranges the hymns either by their name or by their first line. So this is just Miriam singing the song of Moses. Now, as for the fact that she's called here a prophetess, we should probably mention that there are many female prophets or prophetesses mentioned in the Bible. At least nine, by my reckoning, if we assume two daughters of Philip. But of course, there could be more. Numbers 12 makes it clear that Miriam is not a prophet in the same way that Moses is a prophet. So there are degrees, and of course, there are offices. That all has to be considered when making application here, but it cannot be denied, and it should not be denied, that there are female prophets in the Bible. Old Testament and new. The story takes an interesting turn in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Merah, they could not drink the water of Merah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Merah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. Now it's absolutely fascinating that immediately after being saved, God leads the people into the wilderness. There is no such thing as an untried faith, brothers and sisters in exodus fourteen thirty one the Bible says that Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. so that's that's great. The people had come to faith in the Lord. Hallelujah. And yet we see right away that that faith needed to be tested, tried, refined, instructed, and developed so the lord led them straight away into the wilderness and not only that but he led them in a way that was littered with hardships and difficulties now keep in mind they were not lost they were following the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night so if the story is clear about anything it is clear that god was leading them so, this is not a story about people who got off track shortly after they were saved. This is a story of how shortly after they were saved, God led them off track. God led them out into a waterless wilderness. He was designing these trials in order to test and refine their faith. There's just no escaping that. John Newton, in his famous hymn, Be Gone Unbelief, wrote, The heirs of salvation, I know from his word, through much tribulation, must follow their Lord. Now, we used to tell this to new converts. The apostle Paul and Barnabas told it to their new converts. In Acts 14, they visited some new believers, and Luke says that they were teaching them that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We need to bring that back. We need to start telling that to people in their preparation for baptism, in in their lead-up to the waters of baptism. We need to let them know that on the other side, pretty much the moment they get out of the tank, there is going to be a wilderness. There is going to be a waterless track. There are going to be hard times because through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. need to tell people that. Now, the text says that they arrived at a place called Mara after a three-day march. So, obviously, they're out of water. They're growing desperate. We can certainly understand that. And so, like all thirsty travelers would do, they see some water and immediately begin to drink it. But it is bitter and spoiled by mineral deposits. And the people are very upset. But in verse 25, the Bible says that God showed Moses a log or a tree that when cast into the waters made the waters sweet. R. Alan Cole says helpfully here, the verb showed is the root from which the word Torah instruction is derived. This in itself shows how much richer the Hebrew concept Torah was than the English concept of law. Here, Knowledge of a way to blessing and salvation is called a Torah, closed quote. That's a very helpful insight. We often think that law just means Torah. Torah means law. We think those words are perfectly equivalent, but they're not. And, and so sometimes when we think of the Old Testament, we think of it as a law book, but it's it's not. It is a guidebook. It is instruction. It is a way to blessing. Remember, God ordained this entire experience. He wants to show, he wants to show the people of Israel that if they look to him, if they trust him, he knows how to sweeten bitter waters. That's a very important lesson and a critical component of a growing faith. Thanks be to God. The story concludes in verses 25 to 27. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, There he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. The Lord tested them and showed them an important principle. If you listen to the voice of God and do the things that please Him, He will give you sweetness rather than plagues. Now remember, He said this to a saved people. So this is not a works based salvation. This is God teaching saved people how to live like who they are. The blessings of God are released through obedient humans. That is a principle we will meet again and again and again in the Bible until we see that principle fulfilled gloriously and climactically in the person and work of Christ. Much more on that later. But before we leave this marvelous story of the Song of Moses beside the Red Sea, let me just share with you something written by Old Testament scholar J. Alec Machir. He says marvelously here. The experience of the Red Sea stands in the same relationship to their Passover redemption as the resurrection of Jesus does to his cross. The cross is the finished work of salvation. The resurrection is that act of God which confirms the reality of the finished work and gives us the assurance that our sins have indeed been forgiven and our eternity made secure. So the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead and knew for certain that they themselves were saved and that the past was past, close quote. I'm not sure that it can be said any better than that, or that it needs to be. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry, Mile One, in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation.